You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. Have you guys noticed that common sense seems to be more and more uncommon uh, these days? (laughs) Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It's part of the greater wisdom literature of Scripture. Several books that give us these nuggets of truth that, when applied in our lives, help us live with wisdom. Um, But I think that having so much available to us the way that we do today, that we have come to hold less and less common sense or wisdom or truth or knowledge in our minds. Because every one of us have a smartphone, a device that we can ask questions of. We don't need to try to hold on to that information. Um, something that happens pretty regularly, probably every movie or TV show that Nicole and I watch, we're watching it and we say, where do we know that actor or actress from? Right? Recognize them from some other show, some other movie. Now, 10, 15 years ago, you'd spend the rest of the show not really paying attention because you're trying to figure out where do I know this person from. But nowadays, you just push pause because you can do that to TV now. And you pull out your phone and you Google the episode, the show, you find them in the cast, and you say, oh yeah, they were in that random movie from 1998. That's where we know them from. And that's just one example of how we often just jump to finding the answers instead of having to make our mind jump through hoops. We're able to satisfy the question, figure it out in short order. And while that's beneficial and time-saving, I think that there is a, a cost to all of that. That we are getting less and less attuned to holding information in our minds and counting on the internet to just supply us with what we have forgotten. There are truths and facts and figures that we used to memorize, but today we just rely on a device to provide us with. Back in the days of Proverbs writing and the handing down of this wisdom, most of the people would not have even had a Bible that they could carry with them. We believe that when Jesus read Scripture, he would have gone up to the synagogue where they would have had a copy of Scripture there for corporate use in their synagogue. And that would have been a great treasure and a great value. Today we're able to carry these things around with us all of the time not only in paper form, but also, once again, on our phones. So in the days when this wisdom literature was first handed down, it was helpful to have it in sound bites, in bite-sized nuggets that you could hear and take a hold of that single truth, remember it, hold on to it. And these would be passed from generation to generation. And probably your family had some some wisdom or some sayings that got passed down to you. Some things that your parents used to say to try to teach you a lesson. And even though you swore you'd never do it, you find yourself repeating them to your kids as your parents just come out of your mouth. Because those sound bites, those nuggets got encoded onto your brain. Proverbs reads differently than most scripture because it's full of these sound bites, these nuggets, these truths that are in short form, 
And they've been put together in this book with some thematic elements and some introduction and some theme. But just as we read in Proverbs 21, it can jump from topic to topic pretty quickly. When we hear these words of wisdom, these Proverbs, and I refer to them as wisdom literature, we probably think of, okay, it's knowledge, it's information. Maybe we even think truth. But that's inadequate. Because the word that is used here for for wisdom, in the beginning of Proverbs, when it says that wisdom is crying out in the streets, and wisdom can be found if it will be sought, it's the same Hebrew word that they used to speak of the artisans and craftsmen who built things. And so, Sometimes when we think of information, we think of just kind of information that's out there, knowledge that's learned. But the scripture, when it speaks of wisdom, it speaks of wisdom that is applied to life in everyday situations. And the people that were thought of to have wisdom were those that could take knowledge about an art form or a craft or building and put it into use in everyday life. And so the wisdom literature is not just information, it's practical skills for living well in everyday life. And one of the things that we encounter almost every day in everyday life is money and time. And this morning, I want you to grab a hold of the few nuggets in Proverbs 21 that speak to us about our time and our money. Because Proverbs has a lot to say about both. About how time and money are spent, and how time and money are saved, and how they are valued. I want to draw your attention, first of all, to Proverbs 21 and verse 5, that says, The thoughts of the diligent tend only to plenteousness, but of everyone that is hasty only to want. The Scripture there is telling us that when we are diligent in our thinking, that will lead us towards plenty. But when we are hasty in our thinking, it will lead us to want. The two principles that I want us to grab a hold of is, first of all, if we'll be diligent in the way that we make decisions and the choices that we make, we'll make better financial decisions. Now, this may just strike you as kind of obvious. It might smack of like, Really, Pastor Daniel, this is the, the, the nugget of wisdom you're going to give me, but if I spend more time thinking about my decisions, they'll come out better? Yeah, that is what I want us to know. Because we often make our financial decisions very rashly. We often make big decisions about lots of money emotionally rather than wisely. We don't gather information and knowledge. We base it on how we feel. And what Scripture is telling us is that when our decisions are made hastily, it will lead to want. You've probably heard the phrase, time is money. And it sounds like the catchphrase of a stockbroker who's always in a rush or a Hollywood movie type that wants you to hurry up and spit it out and tell me what it is that you're trying to tell me. But time is money is kind of this equivalent that's given to us here in Proverbs. Because it's pointing out that if we'll spend our time wisely, we'll gain money. The idea that we see again and again is that time is money, and if you want to save one, you spend the other. If you'll spend time considering and planning your purchases, 
you'll save money. So spend time to save money. You know who knows this principle to be true? Better than we know it? The people who own retail stores know this to be true. Have you ever thought why every sale happens to end on a Monday? Why, why every store has sales that center around holidays? Because they're trying to build a sense of urgency. They want you to feel like if you don't jump on the purchase this moment, this trip to the store, this weekend, this payday, that you're going to miss out. They're encouraging you to get hasty with your financial decisions because they know that if you take time to think about it, you realize, well, I guess that's not really that great of a deal after all, and I don't really need another one of these. I already have three that I don't use at home, so you don't buy it. Some of us often run back to stores, not because we really need anything, but because we've got points or rewards or coupons that are going to what? Expire. I mean, they gave me this money, and it's just going to go to nothing if I don't spend it. Now, I want you to, I want you to picture with me, I want you to picture with me the, the board of directors of your favorite chain of stores getting together in their boardroom with their three-piece suits on after having their extravagant lunch of sushi, and they gathered together and they said, what are some ways that we can save our customers money? Do you think that happened? No, that didn't happen. They said, what are some ways we can convince our customers to spend more money? What are some ways that we can take our best customers and eke out an extra 10%, which will then make our shareholders happy and get us those bonuses that we desperately want? And it was in a meeting like that, with that purpose, that they came up with point systems and loyal customer programs. Now, there are ways to leverage coupons and programs and points and I know that some of you, 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 you work that system and you've put a company broke because you've used their system and abused it. And they thought, we had never thought they would have used it like this. We got to discontinue it. When we purchased our home and we had to renovate it, we, we took it down to the studs. It was a major renovation project. And it just so happened that at that time, Menards had just recently opened and they were offering... Um, this incentive, this tax-free incentive. And so Lowe's, to counter that, on all of the receipts, there was an 11% coupon, and you had to use it by a certain date. Now, they were trying to compete with Menards, and they were trying to get people to come back in the store within a week so that they'd spend more money, but the joke was on them because I was there every day anyway. (laughs) Now, I never went to Lowe's in that period of time because I said, i got to go spend some money today because this coupon's going to expire. I had them in my truck, and whenever I had to go buy more supplies and buy more studs and buy more flooring, there's one right there. I'll take it, because I'm here. And so I'm not telling you that using a coupon is a bad idea, or working the system so you can extra, extra get a little bit extra out of your dollar, but we have to make sure that we are not allowing that expiration date, the end of the sale, the end of the clearance to push us to make a hasty financial decision. 
Because when we get hasty with our finances, we get irresponsible with our finances. Whenever a salesman or a store manipulates time, it's because they're trying to manipulate your money. Whenever a salesman says, you really need to make the purchase today because tomorrow it's going to go back up, they're not looking out for you. They're not. Some of you have been in that situation where you've gone to buy a car and the salesman says, I'm just going to go back and make sure that this is the very best price that we can give you. And they disappear for 20 minutes. They are not back there spending 20 minutes trying everything they can to make you money. They're drinking coffee and they're eating donuts and they're talking about football and making you sit and wait because they're manipulating time to get more money out of you. Proverbs says, when we are hasty with our financial decisions, it will lead us to be in want. The other principle I want you to see here is that the second half of the proverb is pointing out the thoughts of the diligent tend to plentiness, but everyone that is hasty only to want. Hasty decisions will lead us to financial irresponsibility. It'll, it'll, it'll cause us to make the wrong decisions because we're making them quickly. But not only do the hasty decisions lead us to want, they tend toward want. Or they are focused on want. And when we tend toward thinking on what we want, we will live in want. The thoughts of the diligent, the plans of the diligent, lead towards plenteousness. But those that tend in their thinking towards want will stay in want, will constantly be in want. I want to talk to you this morning a little bit about the personal cycle of poverty. Now, the cycle of poverty is a much bigger problem. It speaks to people who have difficulty in receiving proper education, which leads to them not to have the appropriate job, which leads them to make less money, which means that they will have children that don't have the education or resources that they need, and it continues the cycle on and on. And that's, that's a big, grand-scale economy-type cycle of poverty. But I, I want to talk to you about the personal cycle of poverty. The personal cycle of poverty is when we don't have enough. We are constantly living on the edge. We don't have enough money that we are constantly wanting things that we cannot afford, needing things that we cannot afford. And we live in this place of want and need. And when money does come, all we've been thinking about are the things that we want and need, and we have not been planning. And so we immediately spend that money on things that we want, maybe that we need, and it's immediately gone. And we see this play out again and again every year when it comes tax season. And people who have been on the edge, constantly running out of money before they get to the end of the week, running out of paycheck before they get to the end of their bills, it comes tax season. And we run to the taxman with our W-2s the afternoon that the mailman brings them because we are going to get this return and we receive this return, and suddenly, for the first time all year, we are flush with cash, and all the things that we've been thinking on that we want for the past 12 months, we finally have the resources to buy them. So what do we do? We buy them. 
And for that reason, we are flush with cash, you're flush with cash, and then suddenly you have no cash. And you're back into that cycle of want for another year until there's another reason for you to be flush with cash, another windfall. This type of living is fueled by living in want and only leads leads to more living in want. I've seen extreme examples of this in my last 13 years of being pastor in Chandler. I've had the experience of on one Tuesday, a family reaches out to me because they cannot afford to buy groceries, and we help them with their groceries. And the following Monday, they call and ask if I will help them load their 75-inch TV into their car because they're being evicted. How is it that they don't have money to buy groceries and pay rent, but they have this large TV? Because there was a moment that they were flush with cash, and they've lived in want. And to assuage that that feeling of being in want all year, to assuage that feeling of constantly saying no to their children, to things that they want, to assuage that feeling of living in a place where they don't have what they would like to have all year, they splurge on something to reward them for all of their effort and hard work throughout the year, and then they don't have what they need later on. And this cycle just stays in a loop. I've I've, I've spoken with people, I've counseled with people that one day they tell me all about the money that they want at the boat. And just a few days later, they tell me that they need some help with food. Why? Because they were flush with cash. They finally were able to spend some money. They hadn't been able to do that in so long, so they spend it. It feels amazing in those moments, but then it leads to more want. This personal cycle of poverty continues, and you can pour more money into it, but all it does is go in a faster and more widespread loop. So how do we combat this? When pouring more money into a personal cycle of poverty only speeds it up, what do we do? I want you to look at verses 17, 20, and 21 with me. He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man, and he that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. There is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spendeth it up. He that followeth after righteousness and mercy findeth life, righteousness, and honor. To step out of the personal cycle of poverty, a person must change their thinking and reset their affections. Proverbs is telling us if we love and crave pleasure, we'll spend for it as soon as we can, and no matter how much money we have, we will constantly be craving more pleasure. If you love wine and oil, you'll not be rich because you'll constantly trade your money for more wine and oil. Cravings for pleasure and things will always outpace our ability to satisfy them. When we feed our cravings for things, when we feed our cravings, our desires, you know what they do? They grow. Just like anything else you feed grows, our cravings grow. And this does not, that's not only applies to our finances, this applies 
to all of our carnal desires, all of our carnal cravings. You know what happens when you constantly feed your cravings for food? You crave more of it. And it takes more to make you feel full. And you get to a place where you can't eat what is a normal amount and feel full because you're so used to craving so much. This also happens in our sexual desire. We're never satisfied. We cannot outpace our cravings. They only grow larger and larger. And the need becomes more and more frequent. You, you want to you see this lived out in somebody's life. You talk to someone who's an addict. And their need for the substance only grows. And it can never satisfy that craving. They're constantly chasing that high. And the truth is that all of us do this. Some of us just do it with a checkbook and a credit card. So our cravings will constantly outpace our ability to pay for them and meet them. So we must set our affections on something different. Verses 17, 20, and 21, we're, we're, pointing, we're pointing to the fact that we'll never be able to meet all of our craving. If we crave these things, if we love pleasure, we will always be in want. We will always be out of what we need. But verse 21 gives us this, this beautiful promise that if we search for righteousness, we will not only get righteousness, it says, it says it'll give, give us what? Life and righteousness and honor. You see, a craving for righteousness is the only craving that the more we receive of it, the more satisfied we are. This is a great story in John chapter 4. Jesus is waiting for his disciples. He sent them on an errand, so he's waiting by a well. A woman comes to the well to draw water out of it, and Jesus asks if he can have a drink. Jesus and the woman are speaking, and he says, you know, if, if you realized who I was, instead of me asking you for water, you would ask me for water, because I can give you water that will satisfy your thirst forever. And she said, well, that would be great, because I wouldn't have to come to the well and keep drawing water. It would really make my life more easy. Then Jesus changes the subject and says, where's your husband? And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you've answered well because you've had five husbands. And the man that you're living with now is not your husband. And Jesus had been speaking to her about her physical thirst, but then he pointed out the fact that she had been trying to satisfy her cravings for love and intimacy. She'd been trying to fulfill those desires in men and had not been able to find anything that would satisfy her cravings. But Jesus says to her, I can give you water that will quench your thirst for eternity. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount would say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled, satisfied. Jesus would later refer to himself as the bread of life, that when men eat of the bread of life, they no longer hunger. You know what Scripture is telling us? Scripture is telling us that as long as we have this great desire for things or sex or a substance or money 
or wine or oil, we will never be satisfied with it. The only thing that can satisfy is Jesus. He is the water that quenches our thirst and we no longer thirst. He is the bread that satisfies our hunger and we never hunger again. And when we seek righteousness, we seek Him. We not only get Him, we get life and honor. It gives us back more than we bargained for. See, we need to change our thinking about money, exchange our thinking about money with God's truth, and we'll be able to spend wisely, save wisely, instead of spending impulsively. But none of that will matter if we haven't been satisfied in the deepest craving in our hearts and souls with Christ. You know what we're doing most of the time? You know, sometimes we go shopping and we're shopping for things that we need, right? But a lot of times we're looking at the store for things that they don't have because what we need, they don't have. What our hearts are longing for, they don't have. Can I, can I just tell you that there are, there are so many times that I find myself standing in front of the refrigerator and there is nothing there that I want to eat? The refrigerator is full of food but what I'm craving can't be found there. And whether we're looking at the fridge or that refrigerator at the gas station or the clearance aisle, we will never satisfy our cravings with the substance, with the purchase, the person, with the house, the car. It will only be only be in Him that we are truly satisfied. And when He comes into our life and He assuages that, that thirst and that hunger and that craving, when we receive money, we don't have to run out and spend it on something that we hope will fix our craving, satisfy our longing, because we're already full. We're no longer thirsty. We're no longer craving. If you search for righteousness, you'll find it. And you'll receive honor and life as well. If you watch commercials, you'll notice that they're not just trying to sell you a car. They're trying to sell you a way of life. Right? Trying to sell you luxury. Trying to sell you status. Because they're trying to, to tap into that real deep thirst and longing that you have. And they're, they're telling you that if you have this sense of adventure, if you're highly esteemed in others' eyes, then you'll be satisfied. But it is only in Jesus that our affections will be satisfied. It's only in Him. So the way that we break the personal cycle of poverty is not with more money. It's not with better education. It's by receiving what we're truly longing for in Christ. And you know what's great about that? It can work in any economy. 
That's the reason that there are people that have nothing in comparison to what we have, and they're more content than we are. Because their hunger and their thirst has been satisfied in Jesus. That's the reason that there are people that have way more than you and I will ever have, and they're not happy. Because what they have has not assuaged their guilt, their thirst, their hunger. If you'll search for righteousness, you'll find it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I can give you water so that you'll never thirst again. I am the bread of life, and he who partakes in me will never be hungry. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.